Dakota Palicki is a strategy officer at Lumina Foundation, an independent, private foundation in Indianapolis that is committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all. Dakota leads a national network of cross-sector partnerships focused on improving the human condition by improving systems that develop, attract, and connect talent. His prior work in designing and operating collaborative efforts to solve social challenges guides his work at Lumina. Serving in a dual role as Director of Strategic Partnerships and Projects and as Director of College Access at Chicago Public Schools, he was responsible for developing and driving a citywide vision for college access, support, and success for over 400,000 students. He also led the creation of the Chicago Higher Education Compact, an initiative with the express goal of increasing Chicago Public Schools' four-year college graduation rate to 60% by 2025. Prior to that, he designed and implemented award-winning urban teacher preparation programs that place communities at the center, cultivating education, talent, through community partnerships and immersion. I am so excited to spend time with you today, Dakota. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm delighted. I'm really, really glad to be here. So let's get started. I always think that it's super useful to kind of give people an idea of how you got to where you are in your professional career. So tell me, how the heck did you wind up in philanthropy? I honestly don't know most of the time. Uh, so I started as a music teacher um, in Chicago, uh, on the south side of Chicago at Lindblom Math and Science Academy, uh, quickly moved into teacher preparation. And uh, really that got my uh, work moving in this cross-sector partnership because the institution I was working for really believed in training teachers in communities that they were going to be teaching in. So I worked a lot with local uh, community-based organizations to support the development of teachers. All of that work eventually brought me back to Chicago Public Schools, but at Central Office, where I was coordinating citywide post-secondary strategies, among other things. It was one of those catch-all jobs where, you know, you end up doing all the other as duties as assigned, and so kind of the jack-of-all-trades for a while. Uh, and it was through that work at Chicago uh, that we were bringing together the public, private, and social sectors to say, how do we really improve college graduation rates for Chicago Public School students? And so from there, um, I had a chance to uh, work on a couple of projects that was funded by Lumina Foundation. And so when Lumina uh, back in, what was that, like 2017, 2016, uh, relaunched their plan and wanted to go another uh, level deeper in some of their community mobilization work, uh, um, they kind of recruited me from Chicago and, and asked me to come and, and join their foundation to uh, lead the effort around community mobilization. So. I kind of fell into philanthropy. Um, you know, it worked out. My wife, uh, Lumina is located in Indianapolis. My wife had already moved down to Indiana because she was working on her PhD at the time. So we had been living apart and it was a nice, perfect symmetry. So uh, that's how I ended up in philanthropy. Yeah. So the stars aligned, right? I, it really, yeah, it really did. I feel like the best pathway to philanthropy is experience and a whole bunch of other other uh, areas of work and, and community-based work is obviously, I think, the future of philanthropy in a lot of ways. So, um, so tell me a little bit more about Lumina Foundation and your goal and what it is that you're doing there. Yeah. Lumina Foundation is an independent private foundation based in Indianapolis uh, with a national scope. 
and we're committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to everybody. Um, and so we uh, are, are best known originally uh, when we first uh, kind of came out of get, we're a fairly young foundation around just 20 years old. Um, and uh, we set a national goal. And that goal was that uh, based on workforce projections, the data that we had available, uh, we set the goal that 60% of working age people are going to need college degrees, workforce certificates, other certifications and quality cert uh, credentials by 2025 to meet the social, economic, and individual needs of our country. Um, and so uh, we're currently at 51.3%, so making really great progress. And you can always pop on Lumina Foundation's website, check out the Stronger Nation tool to see all the data disaggregated by race and by state. It's a really great interactive tool. Uh, but most of our, uh, well, actually, all, we're, we're, we're really unique in a lot of philanthropies in the sense that we have one focus area, learning after high school, and we have a time-bound quantifiable goal that we pursue. Uh, so Lumina uh, decides and, and uh, creates all of its strategy work uh, really based on what's going to advance that goal uh, most equitably uh, moving forward. Um, so we give out grants, we do impact investing, a lot of thought leadership activity, uh, a variety of other kind of uh, convening power, uh, things that philanthropies do, uh, but with the intention to redesign our uh, post-secondary uh, or learning beyond high school system. Uh, so everyone has the education they need to be uh, prosperous in life. That is, there's so much good stuff there. And I think Lumina definitely sets the example for a lot of communities to kind of strive for those things too. I've seen states set goals and I know Lumina has been at the helm and leading the way in that, in that effort to increase the attainment or, you know, the skill level of our working age adults in the country. All right. So that is a really big goal. Um, and I'm curious though, why 60%? And then what do people think when they hear that your, you know, your foundation is really aiming at a goal that's time, that's time bound? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And it is going to be a very interesting case study in philanthropy uh, for years to come, I think. You know, we set the goal originally based on the best thinking at the time. Uh, you know, Georgetown Center for Workforce uh, does a really great job of, um, you know, really taking a, uh, keeping an eye on what our workforce is going to need in order for America to stay prosperous. And that means both internationally, but also domestically uh, from an individual self-sufficiency uh, life perspective. And certainly as we boil down to the communities, you know, what does a community or a region need to be prosperous, economically viable and a good place to live and call home? Um, so that 60% number comes from a whole lot of math and research uh, that I would be doing a disservice to try to just even uh, one line it. But it really is our best thinking. And I'll also share very quickly that uh, that goal was set some time ago. Um, and uh, as those data and projections get updated, we realize that actually the, that 60% number might be a little low. It could be closer to 65%, 70% now, uh, particularly as we see the future of work uh, and uh, new drivers that are driving the economy and workplace uh, change the kind of uh, education and training and skills uh, that people need in order to be successful. Um, I'd say too that uh, to your second part of the question, I think it was very generally well received. Um, you know, initially, of course, as a big foundation, coming out and saying, hey, this is what's important. And we want to stick a stake in the ground here and say, here's a goal. Let's all drive towards it. 
Um, what we saw happen from that is that many, many states started adopting goals. Uh, almost every state in the country now has a state-wide attainment goal. Uh, we're talking about now measuring, uh, you know, uh, post-secondary education in very common ways across the state. So it certainly has seen a lot of and informed a lot of conversations at the state level, of course, at the federal level. And then uh, as the, you know, kind of reciprocating process comes along, we see many communities and regions also setting their own goal. And so there is something, uh, there, there's a lot of power in people coming together and saying, you know what, here's what our goal is going to be. And here's when we're going to try to achieve that goal. Now, how do we uh, mobilize and take action to make sure we can accomplish that goal? So at the very least, just by setting a goal, I think uh, it's been very uh, productive and in informing the conversation and getting more attention paid to post-secondary education generally. And then, of course, as time has gone on, we've seen a lot of individual action uh, tied to goals that have really seen quite an uptick uh, in uh, post-secondary attainment across the country. Yeah, I could ask you a million questions about <laughs> this goal setting and philanthropy all day long. I think it is going to be a great case study, and I, I, I cannot wait to see what Lumina does between now and 2025 to get to that goal, because in, what I've seen so far is that um, there's a lot of innovative and emergent work coming out of this effort to reach that goal. And I love the collaboration around it. I think it's, um, I think it's the way to go. And uh, so, so we'll, we'll have to wait and see see what happens next. Yeah, Tessa, you're exactly right. I'll, I'll just quickly add too that, um, you know, for any uh, philanthropy uh, super nerds out there listening, it's also a fun conversation set to ask, you know, what happens to a foundation after the goal is over? You know, what does Lumina look like in 2026? So luckily we have some really great folks internally that are starting to think about that. But uh, I agree, it's an interesting approach um, and it's exciting to see a national philanthropy take this kind of, uh, take this kind of swing. Absolutely. Yep. So, so you mentioned though, I mean, it sounds like you, you all are investing in a lot of different ways and a lot in a variety of um, tactics to change systems and to see what really works. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. My, yeah. So then my, my question though, and I think that this is something that's particularly interesting to communities across the country that are kind of working with you um, towards this goal is, is how, how have communities fit into this? Um, what has been sort of the strategy with communities, with community level work? So, you know, when we think about uh, communities from a Lumina position, um, you know, it, when you think about the kind of change that needs to occur, um, it's going to take full on systems redesign and systems change. And there are tons of different systems change models out there. Uh, and I am a model agnostic kind of person. Uh, I always say to people, you know, take the model that works best for you. What I will say, uh, almost every model that I've ever seen that's worth uh, a look at uh, always includes things like policy and practice change. It includes the need to change the way resources are allocated and resources are flowing through systems down to individual organizations and down to individual people. And also, it, it also always includes a, a shift in mental models and the way that we think about a particular problem or 
population uh, or organization or system. Um, it is impossible to achieve systems change just by working at a state or federal level. Uh, it would not be able to be accomplished. So community uh, and that level of aggregation of saying this very either hyper-local, if we're talking about a, a particular neighborhood, a particular street in a particular town, uh, whether we're talking about a, a county, multi-county, or an entire multi-state region, uh, is a really critical level of aggregation because that's where people are going uh, to get the kind of education and services and training they need to be successful. Uh, at the end of the day, we can have all the best federal and state policy in the world, but if no one leverages that policy in a positive way, if that policy is not informed by the reality on the ground, then it's not going to lead us to the kind of goals that we have for our country and certainly for our communities. Uh, so communities uh, from a Lumina perspective and certainly from my perspective are at the center of all of this. Um, it doesn't make sense for anyone to uh, advocate for uh, a particular policy regulation, uh, to advocate for additional funding, um, if at the end of the day, uh, that is not likely to change uh, the ground game. Um, so communities uh, have an, a really important role to play uh, by not only providing the direct service by serving that ground game, but they have the dual responsibility of having to constantly inform up the chain to state policymakers and federal policymakers and think tanks and foundations and evaluators, uh, it's the constant dual tax that we put on our community uh, providers uh, to do this kind of work. Um, so they've always been very central to Lumina's uh, approach. I think the other thing too, um, if I can just add one more bit to this, is that when Lumina says community, what we're really saying, uh, a community is shorthand for cross-sector partnerships that involve the public, private, and social sectors uh, at the particular local or community level. And the reason that nuance is so important is because we uh, as a foundation uh, and certainly as a nation, uh, if we just go out and try to just change, let's say, a college or a university, we're also not going to achieve that systems change that we were discussing earlier. Uh, instead, what's going to happen is that we might make some change for that particular institution, the people that are employed by the institution and the people that institution serves. Uh, but by leveraging a full community, we're actually much more likely to achieve a regional scale uh, that's going to be much more impactful. Uh, so it's important to say that uh, really community is where the cross-sector nature of the problems, the complex social challenges we're trying to solve uh, live. That's where the problems live and that's also where the solutions set live. Um, so that's a little bit about why communities have been so important to Lumen. I can certainly go on for a little bit if you'd like me to. Yeah, well, you know, and I will say it is, you know, having obviously my work is within a community that's been closely intertwined and benefited greatly from Lumina's vision and innovation. Um, you know, it, there is something to say for seeing an example of something working somewhere else and sort of the added willingness to try it within another community when you see it working in another place, right? So if we share our pain points, we can also share our best practices in terms of how do we how do we start to change those things. Um, so that's that's something I see that's just so valuable, and I think it's really motivating for communities too to have partners from outside the area sort of invested in their work and 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 letting them um, do the work that it takes to figure out how to start to transform systems. And that's no easy task. Right. No, no, it is not. And but I, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, uh, one of the mantras that I kind of 
keep in mind as I talk to community leaders and cross-sector partnerships is like, th there's no one coming to save you. Uh, there, you know, if, if we're looking at intractable social problems that live in our neighborhoods uh, and in the places that we call home, uh, we cannot wait and sit by the sidelines for someone else in some other world or state or federal, wherever you're looking for to come solve our problems. Yes, those other, you know, state policymakers, state agencies, federal policymakers and federal agencies have a role to play, but so does the community. Uh, and so it's really important to see more and more cross-sector partnerships coming together and answering a simple but really difficult question to, uh, to uh, address, which is what can we do together that we can't do alone? Uh, and just that alone, that, that very question alone is incredibly powerful as a catalytic force to get more and more uh, progress made towards redesigning the systems that we all care about. Yes, that is the most important question. Mm -hmm. So, so tell me a little bit. I mean, obviously, I know I don't. I don't want to be too coy here. I know a little bit about talent hubs. Um, just a pinch. Just a just a little bit. Just a little bit. We're lucky. Southwest Florida is a talent hub. Um, which I couldn't be more proud of, but but tell us a little bit about about talent hubs and sort of what was the strategy? What is the philanthropic strategy behind this idea of a talent hub? Yeah. So for <clears throat> excuse me, when Lumina started in this uh, community work, um, we went far and wide. Uh, what we did was we started an initiative called the Community Partnership for Attainment, and we went all over the country and said, who wants to work in this way? Who wants to you know, bring all these sectors together around post-secondary education, and what can you do together? And over the course of three years, uh, Lumina supported uh, just over 70 partnerships, some which were brand new and just getting started, others that have been already operating in the past, uh, and we kind of brought them further along and helped support their work. As we zoom ahead, uh, and at the end of that initiative, uh, you know, Lumina took stock and said, well, what's been going on with this body of work? One of the things that was very apparent to us was that not only the communities themselves, but other interested parties kept asking us, hey, can you point us to the two to three to five places that are really getting this right? Who is doing this really, really well? In other words, they're asking us, who is a mature partnership that we can continue to learn from? Um, and uh, Lumina, as I mentioned earlier, we've always been model agnostic. Uh, there are a lot of organizations out there, a lot of networks that say, oh, this is the one right way to collectively make an impact, or you know, this is the one right way to organize all your stakeholders. We've always believed that a community needs to decide what is best for them, and every community is different. Uh, and so we remain model agnostic. And the challenge with remaining model agnostic, though, is that it's then hard to say, oh, that chamber over there is running a really interesting partnership that's very much like your United partnership over here, or like your uh, you know, partnership over here that's ran by a community foundation, or this one over here that's ran by a separate 501c3 organization. And so what we decided to do is said, you know what, we needed a designation, we needed a way to mark to the world that there are certain places that have really figured out how to operate highly effective cross-sector partnerships to mobilize uh, change, uh, particularly around uh, talent and talent uh, connection, attraction and cultivation and connection. 
And so uh, we created the Talent Hub designation. It's built on five different domains. I like to kind of, uh, you know, compare it to a lead certification. Uh, you know, uh, when you walk into a lead certified building, that, that that building has met rigorous standards set by an external agency that's been assessed, and then they earn that particular designation that's bestowed on that building. It doesn't matter where that building is. It doesn't matter what is inside that building, what happens, uh, what business or organizations inside of it. You know that that is a high quality building. It's the same concept with town hubs. Uh, wherever you are in the nation, uh, whatever kind of composition of partners you have, uh, these are places that have really figured out very well how to work together, have made changes together, uh, are focused on equity, are focused on partnership health. Um, and so uh, our, our key strategy here to the second part of your question was really twofold. It's a, it's a kind of concurrent strategy. One is to say, we're going to go out and we're going to designate all these places and just tell the world that they should all be looking at these places that have figured out how to do it. And not only do we want other communities to come and learn and aspire to reach that talent hub level, uh, we want the talent hubs to learn from one another, but we also want states and uh, states in our, our federal government. We also want private businesses to look to these places. Uh, it, it was all about saying, these are the places around the country that have figured it out. Go look at them, pay attention, spend some time with them and invest, invest uh, not only in them, but also in your own home community Community on improving themselves to be more like a talent hub. At the same time, uh, it's not just enough for us to put these places on a pedestal that they deserve. Uh, we need to also be responsible and support them in their continued work to move forward uh, because you don't stay at the cutting edge uh, just by being there. You have to continue working. It's a continual process. And so the concurrent part of the strategy is we also provided uh, grant dollars and technical assistance and networking opportunities uh, to these talent hubs so they can continue their innovative work uh, to make the talent system a little bit stronger in America. Um, so that's a bit about uh, our strategy. I think it's gone really, really well. Uh, if I may say so myself, I know I'm biased in saying that, but uh, I, I can tell you uh, for certain that um, many more places have chosen to invest in talent hubs, which is a great signal. Uh, we've we've matched, uh, you know, our, our talent hubs have raised an additional over $40 million over the course of three years uh, that matches the initial small investment that Lumina provided. Uh, and we've also seen many, many new uh, partnerships emerge uh, in places like Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, and uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Indiana and all across the country, Sacramento, big and small places, rural, urban, uh, have been looking to town hubs as an example. So uh, I've been very uh, encouraged by the work that we've been able to accomplish with the town hubs uh, over the past three years. Yeah, I think that um, it's a really interesting strategy. You know, my background is in sustainability, and I also mm -hmm. ended up in philanthropy. And so you, you what you're describing across the board with the community level work that Lumen is doing, the talent hub designation, and this idea of continuous improvement. Like you never check the box off and say, oh, we did it, right? Just like at 2025, when you hit 60%, cause I'm sure you will, um, you're not gonna be like, okay, we're done, right? That's it, because the challenges will continue to grow. And so I think the, the idea of a talent hub being a community that is able to focus on a process of collaboration for systems change. That to me is the highest value of it because you can have a ton of talent and something like a pandemic can happen and your talent could move away, right? Mm -hmm. So what's left, what are, what's the, the foundation that's left in that community to ensure that it can 
that it can be resilient over time. And I think, I think it's a really, a really interesting strategy. Um, and I know, I know it meant a lot to Southwest Florida to earn that talent hub designation. Um, we sort of consider ourselves the underdog a little bit, you know, um, but I'm curious from your perspective, you know, what do you, why do you think communities want to earn the talent hub designation? Cross-sector partnership work is among the loneliest work there is um, in our country, if you ask me. Uh, people who show up every day to their job and their job is to uh, guide people through a process to try to manage an ecosystem and to remain focused not on individual programs that are making a difference, maybe in individuals' lives, but instead on the system to making sure that the system of relationships uh, between organizations and people, uh, that's really lonely work. Um, I, so I think there's a big uh, desire among people who are focused on systems change, people who are trying to bring partners together to say, who else is out there doing this? Who can I learn from? Uh, and how do I stay connected? Um, I also think too, the reality is, is it is really hard work. And uh, it's also kind of thankless work in a lot of ways. Um, you know, we're talking about population level metrics. You know, we kind of have to remind ourselves even at Lumina, you know, it's easy to look at our Stronger Nation report and say, oh, we only gained 1% last year. That's millions of people. That's millions more people above baseline that are earning the kind of high quality credentials they need to live a prosperous life. Uh, same thing in communities. It's, it's like you said, it, you know, it, the, the feeling of being an underdog is common in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, I think that there's something really important uh, that needs to be addressed there. And so one of the things that I, I feel very strongly about is that as a national foundation, it's important for us to acknowledge uh, the humble work, the very hard work, the daily grind uh, that people are doing at home to make uh, the system work a bit better. Uh, the reality is, is that um, I know for me here in Fountain Square in Indianapolis, I expect organizations around me to function. You know, I, I want the businesses in my neighborhood to be prosperous and to continue providing the services that I enjoy. Uh, I want uh, the electricity grid, uh, the plumbing to work, the sewer system. I wish one day Indianapolis would invest in street sweeping, but that's a whole nother topic. Uh, you know, I want government services to work, but I also want there to be healthcare services and I want those systems to be working together. Who is focused on that, right? It's you, it's you, Tessa. And it's the Tessas and the other people around the Tessas all around the country that are focused on making that system work. Um, and so someone has to do it. And I think it's really important that uh, national philanthropy and other national agencies take a minute to uh, really recognize, uh, acknowledge, and continue to support. Uh, it's not enough to just say, hey, these places are doing great. Put your money where your mouth is. Uh, continue to invest at the community level for place-based initiatives that are really making a change um, because that change is important. Uh, I think that if I can, I'll just tack on one other bit here. You know, I, every once in a while, I'll, I'll keep an eye on the kind of Gallup survey reporting, particularly in the trust and government services. And if you were to take a look at this, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but um, trust and confidence in our federal government's uh, ability to address both domestic and international problems has been dwindling since like the 70s, right? It has really just been dropping 
every every year. And I think it's important to keep in mind the longer time frame we're talking about. We're talking about 30, 40, 50 years now of this uh, American's public decline in confidence that our federal government can solve our problems. Um, same thing, same state, uh, same conversation with the state. Although we trust our state to solve our problems a little bit more than the federal government, it still has been declining. The only thing that's been steady is our trust in local. Our trust, the, the American public's trust in their neighbors to come together and solve our seemingly intractable issues uh, is really critical. And so when we talk about things like uh, creating a stronger talent ecosystem, making sure people have the training, skills, and education uh, they need to be, uh, you know, uh, they need to be in order, they need to have in order to participate in the economy, in order to generate new jobs, or if we want to talk about, you know, ending structural racism. Right? That happens at the community level. You have to do that at the community level. Uh, and so I think it's really uh, vital for other national organizations. And I'm proud to work at Lumina, uh, who has really taken a, a, sard, a hard stance on this and, and really acknowledged the tireless work of our community organizations. Yeah, it, take, it takes me back to another sustainability sort of mantra, which is think global, act local, right? If you mm -hmm. change, you can't, you can't do top down only, and you can't do bottom up only, you kind of need a both, both and. And so I think, um, I think it's, it's an interesting approach in philanthropy. And I think the trust, the trust issue is a big one. And I think, um, as you know, very well, when it comes to cross-sector partnerships and community collaboration, trust building is the thing, right? It's the thing to make it go. There's nothing worse than being part of a network for a long period of time and sort of having a negative conversation with someone that you spent a ton of time trying to build trust with. And that that's sort of like the, the grind of this work, right? Absolutely. It's, it's a challenge. So yeah, I think that's really good points. I mean, if you wanna see real change and people trust their community to make that change, it makes sense to, to really focus on how you, can, how you can do that work at the community level. And for what it's worth, I think there's just something very human and natural. Uh, there, there's interesting research out there about um, individual trust. Uh, and uh, it, it suggests that um, you can, an individual, a human, can only develop the strongest, most trusting relationships with seven people, plus or minus two. Uh, and so if we think about that from a work kind of environment, if I'm a higher ed leader, if I'm a business leader, if I'm a community leader, who are my seven plus or minus two people that I can trust in my ecosystem to share my troubles, that I can rely on in times of crisis as well as in times of prosperity. Um, and so when we start thinking about that, starting to aggregate it up, it, it, it is a very clear and compelling case for why we need more of these cross-sector partnerships uh, it, you know, that become high-functioning ones across the nation uh, to make sure we're addressing the problems that we need to address because uh, they are. There they, they are challenges at the local level. Uh, and uh, again, you, you need partners to help you solve some of our more intractable problems. Yeah. So tell me this, you, you, know, you know a lot of communities across the country and you've watched them work together for a long time. Any surprises, anything sort of jump out at you that, that you didn't expect? Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, so so many uh, in, in a lot of really great ways. I mean, 
um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying that there's a lot of positive uh, surprises. Um, you know, uh, in some communities, you know, there might be a significant uh, change in leadership. You know, someone might get a new mayor, for example, and everyone gets worried, oh, is this an, another initiative that's going to burn out? Uh, but we've seen uh, in some of our town hubs that uh, it's actually the town hub that brought together the new candidates of the mayor and said, you need to sign off on this plan. Otherwise, you're not going to get the support of all the organizations listed on this. Uh, so it's been uh, incredibly surprising to see how many partnerships have been able to leverage that collective trust, uh, leverage their collective momentum uh, to keep focused on their goals despite leadership transitions. Cause that's something we always hear. There's usually a, you know, a silver bullet that ends something. Um, you know, also uh, I, I've been really impressed at the level of creativity um, that uh, is brought to solving seemingly intractable problems. Um, you know, there are many examples where we've seen people use really creative financing schemes, uh, really creative spaces, physical spaces, have uh, thought about the interconnectivity between transportation and sustainability and jobs uh, to solve discrete issues. Um, and it's been nice to see that sometimes that, you know, I'm thinking of one example in Detroit where someone just said, listen, I can't make it to my job on time because the bus doesn't even get to that job. Even I take the earliest bus, I can't get to the front door of my employer on time. Uh, they brought that somehow to this cross-sector partnership table. And not only did they rework that one bus route, but it led to the conversation comprehensively about transportation infrastructure connected to talent, which is usually not where transportation conversations are. Uh, so incredibly encouraged and surprised uh, in a positive way at how many places have been rethinking um, the kinds of services and, and sectors that we all have to work with around a talent-based agenda, which is really exciting to see. Um, of course, there are some surprises uh, and tropes that uh, are still out there that I'm uh, still surprised that we're still having to deal with. You know, like this whole notion of like today's students, right? We, we know today's college students are older, they're more racially diverse. They're working jobs. They're raising families on their own. You know, I mean, uh, you know, 37% of today's students are 25 years of age or older. You know, 46% are first generation. 42% are students of color. 64% work. 40% of them are working full time. And these aren't graduate students. These are people pursuing associate's degrees, bachelor's degrees, high quality certificates and certifications. certifications. Um, you know, and so it's it's surprising to me that we still need to remind people of what the current status is uh, because certain things like college are just so uh, from pop culture and from our own experiences cemented in our mind. And we get the you know idyllic 18 year old white male unencumbered person that lives off mom and dad's trust fund playing guitar on the quad and throwing Frisbee. Uh, that's not what it is anymore, folks. And so, um, you know, I think our talent hub leaders know that uh, they're out there every day reminding their partners of that. Um, but it is interesting uh, being someone who has a chance to see some of these partnerships and, and work with them. The amount of times I'm asked to come and say, hey, can you remind our partners of like who today's students really are? Um, so there are some things that uh, one of the things I guess I'll, I'll sum that up to say is surprising is how long it just takes for very knowledgeable people to understand what the real issues are, who we're really talking about and what the system actually looks like. You know, our good friend Jack Hess from Civic Lab always says, you know, his main mission in life or, you know, maybe it's not his main mission, but he, he always talks about making the invisible visible. 
Uh, and uh, it's such a it's such an important and long process. And uh, even when you think, as you said earlier, you know, even when you think you check that box, you never actually check that box. And so that is something that I guess surprises me. And I've just grown even more and more to appreciate over the course of time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that, you know, for I hear my- a hint of frustration in your voice there. Tessa. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, so here's a plug for some of the other episodes of this podcast, we talked to, you know, today's students, uh, adult learners who are who are really just trying to make ends meet and figure out how to improve their lives and the lives of their kids, just like everybody wants, right. And um, it's just been eye opening to talk to them. And, and to put a face with a number, uh, to put a face with someone who maybe dropped out or stopped out at some point, you know, I prefer the term stop out because I think we, it's mm-hmm. our responsibility in our systems to always work to bring them back. Um, and that's an opportunity that we have. But I think that the flip side or, or the, the, the sort of dot, dot, dot after it's so hard to get people to understand how stu- the, 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 how the traditional student has changed. It's not who you thought it was or who it used to be is then how do you then get folks to understand that because we didn't accept that the systems aren't serving those students anymore and so therefore you play a role in why they didn't make it or why they might not make it or why they might not enroll you know or why they might choose to go to work instead or why they might not graduate from high school right so so it is that's the even harder part is to get people to understand and to accept and take ownership, in my opinion, for the fact that when we don't accept the reality of how the world has changed, um, oftentimes we continue to expect the world to function in a system that's based on history. And so um, that's something that, you know, that's just like, for me, that's sort of the end of your sentence in, in this work because it's easy to say like, oh, it's not that big of a deal to, I mean, who cares if people accept that or not? But the problem is, is that the system is designed for that imaginary student. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're touching on something that's, you know, the amount of time uh, and effort that we have to put into reframing um, a a lot of what people think, uh, including industry insiders, uh, it's, it's a lot of time and effort. And, and that is something our commu- that it can really be done very well at the local level. Um, for example, we talk about adult learners. Um, uh, you know, we used to call them non-traditional students. And thankfully, we're moving away from that framing because they're not non-traditional students. They are students. Um, uh, but you know, when we still talk about uh, an 18-year-old coming straight out of high school, a college will say, oh, that's part of our recruitment uh, efforts. But you know what we don't do? We don't recruit adults. Uh, we try to market to adults. We try to market college to adults. So there's a reframing. What if colleges and institutions start thinking about you know, recruiting adults for their institution? How might that change their practices? That's a, it's a small uh, mindset flip that could be transformative. It's the same thing with the, our you know, today's students campaign. When we all start recognizing that today's students are older, more racially diverse, raising families and have other uh, other job responsibilities, we can break from this whole like nine to five classes only available from nine to noon. You know, we, we have to break ourselves of that to, to make sure that we're providing the kind of services. And uh, it's, it's amazing how something as hard as a structured schedule 
uh, is for some institutions. Uh, you know, particularly if, if an institution is looking at it and they're saying, okay, we do have quite a few older students who are on campus now that are working jobs. How do we make it more accessible for them? Shasta College out in Northern California did this really well. They said, you can get an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree from us, but one of our guarantees, it's a great program. One is called ACE, one is called BOLD. Uh, one of the part, uh, particular per, uh, elements of that program is that every time, every semester, classes only meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That's it. And it's so predictable. Employers can now predict when they need to make uh, staffing schedule changes because it's not going to change for four years, three years, two years, whatever it is. As an adult, I can make sure I'm tapping family or other daycare providers to make sure that, you know, you can really plan your life around that. But, you know, if you have to constantly change every single semester, uh, you know, that's really difficult to manage your life around. That's a simple change that can be done that is being done in a lot of institutions but still uh it, it is still quite a struggle for so many so there's in this area uh, there's so many opportunities for us to really uh, reframe some some issues i think the only other one i'm gonna add is this notion of human work right like the fact is humans uh, particularly here in america we've always had to go back and get additional training every time we've changed a job that has always been up we've always been doing this uh and so to think that okay you know college is this time it's a separate time you're not doing anything then you go and work and then you retire that's not how the system works. It never really has. And that's certainly not what the system is going to look like tomorrow or what it needs to today. The fact is that people need to enter and exit the education system uh, to get the skills and education training they need for the next opportunity, for the next job. Sometimes that training is going to be provided to you by an employer, by a community organization. Sometimes it can be provided to you by a college or university. Uh, it doesn't really matter as long as it's high quality education that has uh, you know, uh, real tangible outcomes for the individual. So there are so many areas uh, for us to keep uh, the pressure up on reframing. And uh, that's really another big responsibility of our community partners out there doing this work on a daily basis. Yeah. I definitely think lifelong learning and different ways of demonstrating competency needs to be much more valued and just sort of really become the status quo of the way we work because people need to work, right? Yeah. And like you said, if you can't predict your schedule and something's got to give, you're going to get rid of school, right? Because you need to pay that electric bill and and be able to um, put food on the table. So so I think I think that that we have some we have some reckoning to do, right? With with how we think about these things and. And that's what we're doing here on the ground in the communities. And I can say that with confidence because I get to talk to the other communities as well. And I see, I see them banging that drum too. Yeah, I know we're running low on time. I just, but you touched on something that's like one of my favorite things and I'll stop yeah. and we can move on. But uh, it's this notion that you just said it, right? Like at the end of the day, education is, if I'm an individual, I'm struggling to make ends meet or just even with my daily schedule, Education sometimes is perceived by the individual as something they're doing for themselves and not necessarily for their whole family. So that's going to be a thing I'm going to exit. Uh, and what colleges and universities and other organizations that look at things in aggregate fail to realize is that people don't decide to stop out uh, at Tuesday at noon uh, when they're steps away from the counseling center. You decide to stop out on Sunday night when it's one in the morning and you've been writing that paper and you're like, I didn't even figure out daycare for tomorrow. You decide to stop out when you can't make class tonight because your boss asked you to stay later. You have to work overtime. Uh, or when there's just, you just, you, you, people don't stop out at convenient times. Uh, and so our system is not structured in a way to reflect 
it's human life. Uh, and yet we all have a story uh, of when we decided to stop doing something or uh, not follow through on a commitment. Uh, and, and I guarantee you, it's probably made in a moment of crisis is when you made that decision, not when you've had a chance to lay out all the facts in front of you. So uh, it's, a, it's one of my favorite tropes that you just touched on. So I, I couldn't help but yeah. interject it. No, thank you. I think you're, that's a fantastic point. And we are running out of time and I'm so sad because I had some other question, questions that I definitely wanted to ask you. So before we wrap up, can you just tell me, tell us quickly sort of, what do you see around the corner with Lumina? You know, what's your prediction for the future with the, with what will happen with the, with the work on the ground, that sort of thing? Yeah, so you know, Lumina released a new strategic plan in September of 2020 that goes into full effect starting uh, in January 2021. Uh, and really, it's it's a new plan, but it's our kind of closing statement, our closing argument to really drive towards the goal. You know, it's exciting uh, because uh, you know we are close to the goal. You know, we we. Um, uh, you know, we are at 51.3%, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, and in some ways is terrifying, right? Because now it's like, no, we have to hit this goal. Uh, and so a lot of our work is going to be focused around how do we make sure people can get into the system and into the education uh, that they need? How do we make sure many, many more adults uh, can actually access the education system? And then uh, once they're in, how do we make sure uh, the institutions and providers that are providing education uh, are really implementing the things that we know work best to make students successful. Like we've been talking about, there are so many you know, things that have been research validated and tested and honestly, more people just need to adopt them. Uh, everything from as simple as structured schedules to guided pathways to meta majors to 15, whatever it is, there are so many tools in the bag that we're not using. Uh, so people need to go out and use more of those tools. And then finally, there's a lot of focus being paid attention to short-term high-quality credentials. Uh, they go by all sorts of different names, uh, certificates, certifications, licenses, whatever it is. Uh, what matters to us is that they're, you know, they're high-quality, that they lead to a, you know, a, a wage premium, uh, to individual economic prosperity, and to further education. There is no such thing as a dead-end credential. Um, so uh, obviously doing a lot more work around making sure more of those programs are provided, that employers uh, are represented presented in the creation and implementation of those programs, uh, and that many, many more adults. Really, Lumina is focused uh, on making sure that we can get an additional 6.9 million more adults uh, through the education system. And, and according to our projections, that means 2.6 million more adults need to earn these quality short-term credentials. Another 3.3 million need to uh, earn associate's degrees, and at least one more million need to earn a bachelor's degree uh, by 2025 in order for us to be uh, on track to hit the goal. Uh, so that's what's coming for Lumina. Uh, communities and these partnerships are really central uh, to this work, as we've been discussing. Uh, this work does not happen in a vacuum. Uh, the kind of challenges and solutions that uh, we need uh, individual organizations uh, to implement can only be done through partnership. And so uh, I, I fully expect there to be a, a growth in the kind of number of partnerships that are doing this kind of work, uh, a further commitment. We're seeing even more philanthropies come on board and say, how do we get involved in this place-based work? Uh, so I'm expecting uh, some really uh, bright lines. I, I think too, there's an interesting question about a philanthropy of when 
you know, when does something, and, and this is something Tessa, you and I could talk about for another whole nother show one day, when does something reach an age of maturity uh, that it, it should uh, no longer be housed or, or primarily driven by a philanthropy? Uh, and I think that equation is different for local philanthropy versus state versus national philanthropy. Uh, but it is an important question. The fact is, is that, you know, our Talent Hub Network, the broader Lumina Community Network, which is about a hundred of these cross-sector partnerships around the country, we have reached a level of maturity where we have to really think about what does permanent sustainability look like. Um, so I, I think the near future, we're really interested in that kind of work of saying, this is so important. This is not gonna be a flash in the pan. Uh, these partnerships are reaching such high levels of maturity. They're accomplishing such tremendous outcomes and getting great goals achieved. How do we make sure we keep attention paid keep providing support to these partnerships that are doing this great work. Um, so we're really wrestling with some of those questions to uh, say, what does it look like to permanently sustain uh, attention and effort uh, to the cross-sector partnerships that are out there making a difference in people's lives? Awesome. Well, listen, that, that definitely alone um, leaves opportunity for us to chat again. We didn't get to touch on equity. We didn't get to touch. I mean, I think we could do a whole conversation on philanthropy. So uh, yeah, um, totally. And listen, I'm, I'm always happy to be like a guest correspondent. So you, I am at your service. However I can be, you let me know. I'm always happy to jump back in. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and we will talk again soon. Yeah, Tessa, thank you. And I'll just say real quickly, uh, I, you know, on behalf of Luma and everyone else, you know, thank you for the tireless work that you've been doing to coordinate the ecosystem down there in Southwest Florida. Uh, and I know that you have uh, tons of really excellent and high quality and committed partners that you work with on a daily basis. I've had a chance to, to meet with some of them and I know there's so many more that I haven't met yet. So uh, it's always a pleasure. Every time uh, anyone from Southwest Florida calls, uh, I always pick up the phone. Uh, so thank you for uh, allowing me into your world a little bit. I, I really do appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You're always a future maker. Thank you. Thank you. Proud to be. All right.